The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Um, we are in the week, the mad rush, the, the last few days before Christmas, and everybody's kind of feeling the energy uh, around here. But I'm in pretty good shape, and I'm, I'm hoping all of my uh, guests that are going to be joining me today are as well. Um, the first thing I want to do is give you our call-in number should you be interested in, in joining the conversation. You can do so by dialing 888-329-3306. And, of course, you can always follow us on our Facebook page at womentowatch.net. Um, we have a great show this afternoon, uh, just chock full of um, guests and, and lots of information. And the first thing I want to do is introduce to you um, a friend and a woman who's going to be an ongoing contributor to the show covering um, the topic of women in finance. And her name is Jocelyn Ewart. She's the founding principal of Entrust Financial, which is a local firm here in the Philadelphia area. Welcome to the show, Jocelyn. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. We've been talking about this for quite some time. Yes, we have. And I'm glad to see your smiling face across across the table from me. <laughs> it's a fabulous topic and a fabulous show. It is. It is. And and I'm very excited to, um, first of all, let the audience know that one of the things we're going to be doing ongoing is following and talking about your book. You have an incredible book that's going to be coming out very soon, um, hopefully by the first of the year. And what it's going to do, if I if I can kind of describe it in an articulate way, is um, really allow women to understand um, what they need to be doing about their financial lives, uh, both professionally and, and personally, and kind of present it to them in a very comfortable and easy-to-understand manner. Is that a good way to describe it? I think that's a good way to describe it. The subtitle of the book is Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. And that was chosen very, very carefully because the point of the book is not simply to give women the information that they need to make financial decisions that are good for them and for their families, but also to help motivate them and to give them the confidence to move forward and proceed and actually make decisions that will work for their lives now and going forward. You know, the, the word confidence, I think, is so important when we talk about women and, and money. Um, and, and there's multiple reasons why women have, you know, a long way to go in kind of understanding and just just feeling like they have a handle on it. And we'll talk about that a lot um, during the show. One of the things I wanted to point out is that in your practice, um, you use, or I should say you practice, provide holistic wealth management. When you use that phrase, what does that mean, holistic wealth management? Holistic wealth management is different from the traditional uh, delivery of financial services because, first of all, we start out with a conversation about the client's values, needs, and interests. Then we proceed with our consultative process. We establish their investment plan as the foundation of their financial house, 
And then we're not done yet. That's really just the beginning because then we move on to address financial concerns they may have that go beyond investing. Yes, which there's many, right? Um, and, and everyone's in a different place. Everyone everyone is in a different place, and I, it's certainly one of the things that motivated me to work in this industry and to write the book is that when I faced a pivotal time in my life, I had the financial wherewithal to make the decision that was good for me. And I want every woman out there to be in the same place that I was. And, and I want to point out so that people understand you wrote this book in, of course, a way that I think is tremendous and smart, and that's through storytelling. And, you know, you will open the book with your own personal story about um, kind of what shaped your own thinking about money and finance. And it always stems from our childhood and, and how we were raised. You want to t- just talk about that for a minute, how that how the book is going to be laid out in that manner? The book is built upon a framework of the concepts and the technical information that anybody needs throughout their life, really, regardless of what life stage they happen to be in, to make good decisions, to be uh, in charge of their financial life. And after the framework is presented – as the framework is presented from chapter to chapter, it's filled out by stories of many, many, many women, what they faced, how they incorporated what they needed to do to move ahead and really create the style of living that was important to them and their families. And also um, the importance of knowing that no matter what your education was around money growing up, you can move past that. You can build upon it, right? If you if you had really good education and were exposed to things at a young age, it, it's an important message to know. Well, there's so many messages because some people had a great financial education growing up, but their own instincts don't necessarily support the education they had, so they have other soul-searching to do to move beyond what their instinct tells them to do despite a good education. Other people, as it will be uh, known to anybody who reads the book, the introduction, I talk about my own background financially, which was pretty much um, non-existent, so I had to kind of start from scratch and figure out what to do to get my financial life to work. My money messages, as I like to call them growing up, were not effective. Many people's are. But the other uh, factor that comes into play for all of us is life happens, and it doesn't always happen in uh, nice, neat pieces. So regardless of what happens, we have to have that framework that is presented in the book. We have to know that we have the tools that we need to respond no matter what comes. Right. One of the things I read about um, in in the foreword, I guess, you said, looking back, I believe my intention to learn what I needed to know to be able to take care of myself was essentially set before I left elementary school. I was, you know, I was impressed by that and, and surprised and amazed that at that young of an age, you had an intention that you were going to do things differently. Well, I looked at my parents struggling, especially my mother, and um, I didn't want that kind of struggle. I felt like if women had opportunities, they should take advantage of the opportunities and they should move themselves forward so that money in particular didn't have to be an obstacle, didn't have to be a limitation, and didn't have to be a constant worry. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing the full story as it develops and, you know, we tell it 
uh, month after month. Um, and I, you know, I really want people to, to tune in and, and we'll of course make the announcement when it's ready to be purchased and read that they do so. Um, real quick before we let you go, um, I know you have, bus- you know, you're busy today. You have to run. Um, just mention real quickly your interest in the arts here in Philadelphia because you are involved in more things than, than just your, um, your practice. Well, I have an interest probably in every performing art that there is as well as visual art. And one of my uh, tasks right now is that I'm the chair of the Board of Visitors for the Performing and Cinematic Arts for Temple University. And what that really means is that we are the ambassadors nationwide uh, and the cheerleaders for Temple University and all the fantastic things that are going on in the arts. It's a, it's just wonderful. Well, it's wonderful, and I'm sure my guests are thrilled to hear that because they are, you know, in the arts, and um, it's a great segue to, to introduce them and welcome them to the show. Jocelyn, thank you so much. I look forward to having you on again next month and sharing, of course, all kinds of good stuff, uh, good nuggets and, and uh, information on our website from Entrust Financial. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I want to uh, mention that we do have Dr. Dupree with us this afternoon. I'm thrilled she's on the show. And hey, Sue. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I am awesome. Lots to share from the weekend. Yes. Let, I, uh, go, ahead. go ahead. Are you going to introduce our guest? Yeah. And then I'll tell you about my quick story because that would be about great. Story. Okay, terrific. Um, so we have um, calling in today. We have Gita Pulapilli. I I knew I was going to stumble over that, Gita. I'm sorry. Gita Pulapilli and Aaron Gaudet, who are writers, producers, and directors of several award-winning films. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. And Thank Ar- you. Hello. Good. I have both of you, and, and the sound is good. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Uh, honored to be uh, a man on on. Uh, oh, yeah. On we love men. We love men. And I have to tell you, Aaron, you're only the second man to be on the show in three years. Wow, great. Yeah, I feel honored. Good. And I'm, I'm looking because we, we know, we know, right, Sue, be, behind every phenomenal woman, there's an awesome guy that plays either the, you know, the best supporting actor or the guy that makes sure that we get all of our stuff done and that we can be sane in the morning. So, um, it's all good. Right. Exactly. Tell me, exactly tell me your right. story, Beth, that you wanted to share. All right, so Sue, Sue knows I, I've been ever since she and I met. I've been I have more frequent flyer miles than Carter has little pills because I, I travel to teach surgeons um, innovative technologies and I also speak at conferences on the latest and greatest in, in the breast care world and also in integrative medicine. And so I had this phenomenal honor of being asked to come to um, uh, Minneapolis. Uh, this weekend. So Minnesota is such a good place to go in December, you know, because it's so warm. And um, I went to Minnesota and I got to introduce one of my patients at a an event. It's called the Medtronic Celebration Event. This um, Medtronic is a big um, healthcare uh, medical device company. And this is the 55th year that they have done this particular process, which I am just honored to be part of because the founder of the company, Earl Bakken, started this tradition 55 years ago where he felt it was essentially um, important for his employees, regardless of what they did, to know the way that what they do, the stories of the impact of the devices that they create. So whether you're a secretary, you clean the floors, whether you're the lead engineer, whether you're a doctor doing research, whether you're a salesperson, it was imperative to him that the people from Medtronic knew the stories of the devices that they create. So um, um, as Sue, Sue knows my patient, um, 
Suzanne Foster, who was a guest on our show. She is the general manager of one of the fastest-growing divisions of Medtronic called Medtronic Advanced Energy. But she has 400 employees, and we got to speak to 85,000 people because Big Medtronic has 85,000 employees, and they all drop what they're doing on this particular Friday afternoon every um, holiday season. Instead of having a holiday party, they call it a celebration event to celebrate the successes of the devices that they do, that they make. And so I got to listen to... I got to introduce Suzanne, my patient, who happens to be the general manager of a division that makes a device called the plasma blade, which is what I had to use to do her breast cancer surgery, which the irony of all of it is just so crazy. And um, the most phenomenal thing for me was listening to the stories of these five other patients. You know, a little three-year-old boy from Australia who this novel insulin pump that hadn't been used on anybody else before was used on him because it feeds back to allow his um, pump to know how much insulin to give this little boy, and it's giving him a normal life. And a 35-year-old phenomenal school teacher who never smoked a cigarette a day in her life coughed up blood and found a cancer which was removed minimally invasively by this rock star thoracic surgeon, um, Sandeep, and I wish I could remember his last name. He's in Virginia. But, um, and another guy, a 45-year-old, whose wife snoring woke him up to find out that he was having a stroke and had complete paralysis, and this device pulled the clot out of his middle cerebral artery and gave him full function again. You know, And a little girl who had a um, curvature of her spine called scoliosis that had they not invented a device, particularly for her, she wouldn't be here today because she wouldn't have been able to live. And now that device has FDA approval after 10 years. But the stories, I was in tears. Like I was, a, I was like sitting there going, okay, pull it together, Dupree. You've got to get up and talk in front of all these people. And I just hearing the stories of, I mean, now I know why they do it. I mean, if you go to work every day and you're pushing a button or you're typing notes or you're doing whatever and you don't see the downstream effect of what you do every day, you cannot possibly – get up and have passion for what you do. And I will tell you, I left there, I mean, I was so supercharged. I, and the day before, I had met this wonderful woman, Amy Purdy, who my CEO had um, had her telecom in. Amy Purdy lost both of her legs to meningococcal meningitis. And she was our Christmas inspirational gift. So I was like, I had these two days of inspiration. I'm going, all right, Dupree, what are you going to do and go home? Like, come on, where's the next act? Because listening to what adversities these individuals have overcome it just makes you realize like how blessed we all are to have our health and that when you can see that technology like this is changing the world it it just i don't know it just it just brings you back to this place where you're in such a state of gratitude so that was my awesome weekend and so two canceled flights i could care less i barely made it out there and i barely made it out back because of air travel but I wouldn't have traded it for the world because it was just, it was so phenomenal. So that's, that's a, all I got. That's, that's terrific. What a great story. All your stories are, you know, opportunities for you, Beth, to see some, um, you know, really moving things that are always a reminder for you to be grateful. We talk about that a lot today and, you know, it, it, and it's all over the news about, you know, being grateful, looking around and, um, those kind of stories are sure going to help you to do that. Um, and of course, storytelling is what we do on the show every week, and that is what Gita and Aaron are all about. Um, I, I want to read this quote, uh, Gita, that you and Aaron use when you're talking about what's important to you and the work that you do. Um, and I've read that authentic. 
authenticity is everything to us. Our stories are about bringing people into worlds that they never would have experienced before and allowing them to live there uh, for a short time. Is is that an, a good little synopsis about what what you do and how you do it? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think one of the things that we always keep in mind is every single day it's important for us to remember just progress forward momentum together. Um, I think that's kind of been our mantra all along is figuring out how to manage the ups and downs of the, of the film business with um, our expectations and just being able to succeed and, and doing it from a good place. That's right. It. Um it's a lot of work what you're doing, and you do you do it from all different areas. Um, I'd love for you to you know just give the listeners a, a quick um, background on the two of you and how you met. Um, I understand you were working actually for a television news station when you met back in 2004. Yeah, that's right. Aaron and I actually were working um, at different competing television stations in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I worked for the ABC station. Aaron worked for the Fox station. And, and, and right. how did? Go ahead, Aaron. How did how did you meet? What was the um, what how what brought you two together? I should say. We actually sort of bonded over our um, dislike of local television news. You know, I think we were both <laughs> butting up. <laughs> we were both butting up against the, um, you know, how short form the storytelling is in television news and how it was getting shorter and shorter. Where. You know, even two-minute news stories were getting cut down into 30-second stories, and it was becoming more gossip-based and opinion-based. And, you know, we really both love long-form storytelling, whether it's a documentary or a fiction film. So I think we both um, were butting up against that and met and sort of bonded over that and said, uh, why don't we try doing something that's more longer-form storytelling like a documentary? Well, I think it's so interesting that you both – so you both came from different places and had a dream to be filmmakers. And then you must have had a conversation where you both said, let's actually make this happen. What was that conversation like? Yeah, what was that conversation like, Eda? <laughs> it was um, – Which version? We, we, yeah, which version is exactly right. I think for us it was um, – I had never thought it was possible for – me to be able to make movies, but I knew that I loved visual storytelling, and I knew that television news was going in a direction that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Um, but I didn't know how to make that bridge to Hollywood. And Aaron had said, well, I think the easiest thing for us to do is to just start making something. And I come from a business background. I my my undergrad degree is in finance from Notre Dame, so I said, well, if we're going to make something, we have to have a company. And so I worked with Aaron, and we started our production company and asked my parents to lend us money, a very minimal amount, to actually start our company, and we bought equipment and just basically went from there. Wow. I mean, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of guts to go, you know, to take that leap. It was, um, yeah, we ended up quitting our television news jobs and saying, if we're going to commit to this, we have to commit to this 100%. And um, not having a backup plan, a plan B, I think, has really helped us because we know what the stakes are and we know that every every day counts for us to succeed towards reaching our goal. You know, 365 days a year, we work on our craft. Every day it's about filmmaking and figuring out whether it's the writing process 
or the business process of figuring out how to make the movie, every day we're doing something for one of our projects. Yeah. Was there was there a moment that was there an event or some heralding moment, something that was like at that moment you just said, okay, we're done. Like, because you know, a lot of a lot of times you get to those places and there's one thing that something that happens and you say, okay, I'm done. I'm I need to move to where I, my heart needs to be. Uh, well, you know, as a television reporter, I uh, would go out into these awful situations. I, for some reason, uh, was nicknamed the death reporter because oh. uh, I was very good about opening, getting other people to open up on their worst days of their lives and share their stories with me in a very profound way. And I think um, when I met Aaron, it was actually kind of the perfect time because I think, you know, when you're out there interviewing people on the worst day of their lives or they lost a, a family member, someone loved close to them, whatever that may be, it becomes um, very hard for even the person that is interviewing them to be able to let go each day. And I didn't know how to process that. And so when I met Aaron and he said, there's other options besides television news, what about filmmaking? It was that moment where I was like, oh, my God, this might be this pivotal change and this new journey that I could go on that I could put myself into and commit myself. And if it works, we could tell the stories that we want to tell with no corporation kind of forcing us to tell a different story. Yeah. Well, one of the wow. most important things is is the success of your partnership and, and working as a team. And I was wondering, Gita, when you think of the struggles that women face in film today, you know, in general, um, how is it that Aaron best supports you and your aspirations? Yeah, it's a great question. I think so much of what we do together is um, we're very much very compatible and when we go into a room, and I, I should probably say, even say, you know, this is a big issue right now in Hollywood. Like everybody's talking about, um, you know, making sure that women have a voice and women are heard. Mm-hmm. But I've never personally thought that way. And I think because I haven't thought that way, I think it's actually helped us kind of progress in making our projects. Um, Aaron and I just come in as a team. And if they like what we're pitching creatively, if they like what we're telling creatively, if they think they know what we can make or what we do, then they're doing it not on my gender, not on my skin tone, but they're doing it because they think I'm a talented filmmaker. And I think that has helped us as a team just go in, not questioning any other motives except, hey, we'll just leave it all on the table in these studio pitch rooms and see what happens. And... Um, and as a team, as a husband and wife and as filmmaking partners, and, you know, we write together, we produce together, we direct together, I think so much of it is that we both bring different perspectives to the table and we both bring different skill sets to the table. But he's kind of a perfect match for me to make the best possible movie and to reach the largest, widest audience because you get the male perspective and the female yep. perspective in each scene. That's right. Perfect. That's right. And and Aaron, I wonder if you can, you know, just kind of chime in on on and describe maybe the importance of women's contributions in film. Um, you know, you experience firsthand what it is that Gita is able to bring to the work that you do together that perhaps another man would not be able to. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and I'm not sure if it's her being a woman, but I think Gita just as a human, is very emotional um, when it comes to storytelling. She's all heart. And, you know, sometimes maybe I'm on the more 
technical side of things or something like that uh, when I when I approach uh, thinking about something or maybe I'm thinking of it in a more visual way where I know like at the end of the day she's just about heart so you know for instance our last movie when we would work with actors we really were giving them you know this very full rounded um, approach to things where we're each watching the scene and we're able to approach it on many different ways but I know that um, you know when we when we tell a story we want it to to have heart and we want to you know tweak people's emotions and have them experience something and you know everybody always talks about like if you go to a movie and it makes you laugh and it makes you cry you you enjoy it so it's like that's our job is to kind of give somebody a full roller coaster of emotions and I think she's critical in that aspect of really just um, knowing when something hits you on a very basic emotional level and you know sometimes there's something that she recognizes that I don't that just comes from that place and you know whether it's a, she's a woman or I've just always found her to be very in tune with that sort of storytelling and, and that like very base emotion well yeah, I, I, I definitely say that that's a skill set of being emotional and I I think people have such a bad connotation sometimes when it's said like oh you're an emotional person and that's totally not I mean to be an emotional person in filmmaking means you feel within each scene within each piece of dialogue the heart that exists within it and I think so it's almost like this weird thing when people say oh you're an emotional woman but I actually to me I'm so happy that that's the skill set that Aaron says I have because to have that is kind of rare in our business, a lot of a lot of people a lot of people can read empathy. A lot of people can yeah, read think, empathy when when they meet you, they feel that energy that you are putting out there. And Sue knows. I mean, there are people that open up to Sue on on the show and tell her things that she wasn't expecting them to talk about. Because if someone truly believes that your heart is open to them, they're much more willing to open their heart to you. That's exactly the skill that Gita has and it served her well when she was a television reporter because like she said she had this sort of gift for people opening up to her and and when we were making our documentary and we were talking with the subjects uh, you know they would open up to her in these very profound ways and it is this skill and I think it's just being open emotionally and you know whether she's uh, you know, when she talks to them, you feel that emotion and that openness. But it's just like you said, like people, she she does have this gift where people open up to her and confide in her and, and all of these different things in a, in a different way than I've ever seen people uh, react or uh, interact with somebody else. Well, you know, in speaking to that, I have to tell you, um, first of all, I want to mention the two films that I had an opportunity to watch um, that you wrote and directed was Beneath the Harvest Sky and How We Get By. And you were both kind enough to, to send those films to me, and I watched them. And first of all, I will tell you, I did cry. Um, I cried a lot during those two films, and those are two very, very different um, stories. Um, you know, Beneath the Harvest Sky, a character... Uh, his name is Casper, and, and the struggles about where he grew up and where he came from and his desire to escape that. And then um, How We Get By was the documentary story about three um, uh, AIDS 
I'll say uh, soldiers who greet greeters. That's what I'm looking to say. The, the yeah, greeters. greeters. Yes. And one of the questions I could not wait to ask you to, because this is what I took away from both of those films. It occurred to me when I was watching them that in both films, um, there's this energy it takes for people to expel their emotions in situations. In other words, so many of the characters in both the films were trying not to feel things because it was too difficult. And I wonder to myself, is that a good thing because it's a coping mechanism? Or are we actually doing harm by not allowing ourselves to feel? So in other words, some people do it through humor. Um, you know, certainly Bill, one of the, uh, the troop greeters, um, his story was, was just heartbreaking to me. Um, but he, as a coping mechanism, he would go out and when he was with the people at the airport, he was, um, I don't, you know, I guess pretending that everything was, was fine and, and then he would go home and feel the loneliness, um, and the pain that he had um, suffered in his life. But again, none of the characters really wanted to let those emotions be known. Yeah. Does that make I sense? I think so much of our storytelling is about wanting our characters to to understand that it's okay to be real, to be themselves, to be human. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, even we want our audiences to do that. You know, we, Aaron and I always talk about, so many people are afraid to feel that they want to medicate themselves from just feeling <laughs> the pain or the heartbreak or whatever they're going through. And it's it's the act of feeling some of those emotions that gets you through it. You have to go through some of those heartaches to appreciate the good experiences in life. Right. Um, and to us, we wanted our characters to be able to show other people that it's okay to feel and show them a path of how to start feeling again or opening up in some way. Right. I I also think it's a very human thing to, you know, feel a certain way when you're all alone and you're dealing with something, but then to sort of put on a happy face and go out and, you know, be different around other people, um, you know, in, in the documentary, obviously, they're real people, and that's stuff they're really going through. But I think when we think about fictional films as well, like Beneath the Harvest Sky, we try to think of the same way of, you know, how how human beings really are with one another, which is, you know, I think a lot of people, when they are alone, you know, they let those things um, out more. And then when you go out and you're with your friends or you're in a public setting, you sort of, like, put on this mask and... You, know, you have this different way you are when when you're around people, and I think that's just a normal human thing that you really get a lot in in the documentary. And and I guess that's a gift too to the people that you love and that you're around because you don't want to always you know you don't want to burden them uh, sometimes with what you're going through because they have their own challenges. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, listen, we're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about uh, some of the awards that you've received for your films, um, and then Gita talk about the Center for International Training, Education, and Development, Development as well. We'll be right sure. back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound 
that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. We have as guests this afternoon uh, Gita Pulapilli and Aaron Gaudet, who are writers and producers and directors of several uh, award-winning films. And one of the things, of course, that I read about the two of you um, are the awards that you have been recognized for and received. Um, You won the uh, Guggenheim Fellowship for your work as a filmmaker, And, uh, Gita, you were recognized as a remarkable woman by the Chicago Tribune and selected as one of Variety's 10 Directors to Watch, which I love that title, Directors to Watch, Women to Watch. Um, I wondered, you know, do you accept these recognitions as as validations of your work? I think they're stepping stones to um, every project that we have. We kind of set goals out for ourselves in terms of, what we need to take our careers to the next level. And something like Variety's 10 Directors to Watch, or um, two weeks ago we were um, selected for the blacklist here out for best um, unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. Um, Those are things that say to us, it gives us confidence to say, yeah, we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. We can still do more, but these are great recognitions. Now we got to keep proving ourselves. And we never, we always joke. It's um, we never want to reach our peak. The moment we think we've made it <laughs> is the the moment we start failing. So right. uh, for us, is we've never peaked. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell tell us about what you're working on now, because I know you're working on your next film. We are. So Kirk County is a project where we're uh, working to get it into production, and it's about a it takes place in late 70s, early 80s, and it's about um, a Lawyer, it's a true story, a lawyer that goes undercover for the FBI and ends up taking down 100 corrupt lawyers, judges, and cops in Cook County, Chicago's court system that were corrupt. Okay, it sounds sounds like a, a – and is this based on a true story? It is based on a true story. It is. I love true stories. They're my favorite. I always think, you know, there's enough – What's that? We love true stories as well. Yeah. I think from coming from news and then going into documentary now that we're, you know, in scripted films, we still are constantly looking for true stories that we can uh, that we can tell to a bigger audience. Well, and there's certainly enough of them. And my feeling is because those, you know, those stories are endless uh, and because they are true that they seem to really touch on the most emotional level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I think, and also sometimes we just think if it's um, how how is this possible? How does some of these things happen? You know, you couldn't make 
any of this stuff up. People would say, oh, my God, that would never happen hmm. in real life. But actually, right. it's a true story that does happen. Yeah, the truth. Yeah, the truth it's, it seems like it's always, um, I mean, when, when, when I tell people stories, I go, how can that be? I said, truth is always grander than fiction. I said, because people, people's stories are, it's what's amazing is that you think, like, particularly when multiple things happen that conspire together to create an event, and you're like, you know, you couldn't plan it to happen that way, but when it happens that way and then you're retelling the story, it's that much greater because it's like, wow, like the universe is, is totally in, in, you know, conspiring to create that opportunity, and it's just a wonderful thing. And to be able to tell that story, um, you guys are doing a great thing because it's uh, – I can't wait to – I haven't watched your documentary, but it's on my Christmas list now. My kids are coming home, and it looks like one of those movies that you want to watch with your family. It definitely is. <laughs> now, especially the, the – uh, how we get by um, is just – is for everyone. You know, I, there were some tough scenes in Beneath the Harvest Sky was was intense. Um, but, again, it's – those those experiences happen, and, and it, it can be real life. My guess is the work that you're doing, Gita, um, in developing countries is going to be chock full of stories um, and and future film ideas. Um, I wanted the listeners to know you founded an organization called the Center for International Training, Education, and Development. And um, basically it's a, it's a nonprofit organization that focuses on training aid organizations and volunteers in developing countries specifically helping them to prioritize their social issues in media. Tell me exactly um, what is done with that organization and why it was important for you to do that work. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, for many aid health organizations, or kind of specifically my um, specialty, but our team works in there, all the different aspects of social issues, any aid organizations, nonprofit organizations overseas will collaborate with, and then universities and governments. And the goal of it is really to say, what are some of the major social issues happening in our society today? And how are we actually getting the message across to those most affected by it and those that can do something about it? And what are those messages? And um, as storytellers, that's the one area that we know what we can do. We can tell a good story and reach our audiences. And so the concept just came from, hey, if this works so well in reaching general audiences and wider audiences around the world, why don't we take our techniques and our skill sets and really try applying it to real social issue organizations that can use our help? They may not really think about, you know, it's really hard to start budgeting for, you know, sometimes the marketing and media aspects of communication messages and really utilizing top professionals in your field to help you. And so our job is to come in and focus on various social issues. And each each year we try to prioritize specific social issues, but we go in and we really just um, train the experts on telling their stories and telling their messages and specifically kind of taking a plan and saying, how do we want to reach um, those suffering from or those dealing with these issues, and how do we want to reach those who can help fund or help support some of these issues that we're dealing with. Um, cancer is a huge issue that we focused on with the American Cancer Society and Harvard School of Public Health. So mm-hmm. we just finished a large project in Kenya that we did where we trained all the first ladies of Africa, so all of them came together with their teams and um, we trained them around messaging on cancer issues. 
Yeah, it's it's terrific, and and you know, funding and and getting financial support for for all things, uh, you know, social issues related is is a tough tough thing, uh, and and there's so many organizations out there. Um, doing similar work, so it's it's important that you get your story to be kind of front and center. Um, let me ask you this, and maybe Aaron can chime in. And speaking about funding your own films, it's really really tough to be young filmmakers, up and coming, uh, or starting out. And um, what have you learned from your own experience in securing grants and financing for your films, in case there's some young aspiring uh, filmmakers listening? Yeah, I think one of the first things, I mean, Aaron, Aaron definitely will be able to dive in on this as well, but one of the first things that I think we realized and we have to recognize, and not only on our first projects, but on all of our projects, is it's still a business. Filmmaking is absolutely a business. Mm-hmm. So you have to take it from the same approach you would take any other business that exists. If you're a small business owner, um, how would you start your business? And within all of your, in your business, all the products that you're providing, it all comes from a profit and a loss. So if you're going to make something, how much are you going to make it for, and then how much do you expect it to get back? And I think a lot of filmmakers forget that part of it. So they want to make it for more money than they need to, or they don't understand the value of the film that they have and want to expect to sell it for a lot more than it's actually reasonable in the marketplace. And it's finding the right budget for the right film that will do a certain amount in the marketplace so that all of your investors and your backers will be able to support you. And that's a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we've we've learned that on, on, on a lot of our projects, but we've learned that very hard on this project because sometimes when you break down a script and you realize how much it's going to cost, sometimes it seems like it's impossible to make for... Um, what you think you'll be able to get back in the marketplace. And um, and then you have to compromise and figure out how to get it back to what it is worth in the marketplace. Right. Well, and and is do you think it's more difficult for, I'm going to just, you know, kind of label you creative folks, you know, you're, you're creative um, people, and you're probably your passion is in the stories and the making of the film. The business end of it, maybe not so much a passion, <laughs> for many, you know, for many people in the in the work that they do, but it's as you said, it's critical in order to continue to make more films. I think the only ones that will succeed in this business world of filmmaking are the ones that think of both. I think that's something that Aaron and I realized early on was when we started and we started that idea of starting our company. We started asking other filmmakers that at the time were we thought maybe starting to make it as well about the business of filmmaking. And we would ask them, well, how, how much money are you spending on this? And they'd say they'd be putting it on their credit card or they oh. got a loan or they were asking for investors to put up money that they knew they would never be able to sell it for. It would be like a 1% chance of ever selling their project and getting that money back. And mm. we just said, that's, that's not smart business making. And we didn't want to ever have a track record where our investors or our donors or our foundations would ever think that we were fiscally irresponsible. Because if if you don't know how to make movies from a creative way and a business way, you're not going to succeed. Well, and you know that's so smart, Gita, that you you started out from the very beginning with that kind of integrity. And I guess you know having a degree in finance from Notre Dame yeah. helped you with that. Um, you know you had that basis. 
I definitely did. My, my parents had started businesses before as well, and I think I think the idea of understanding how to um, you know how to survive, how do you make it small? So many small businesses go under, and I think for us it was if we're going to make a commitment to this company, we need to figure out how to make it sustainable. And you know, the, Aaron and I talk all the time about how do you become sustainable filmmakers. Yeah, I think um, you know it's a very used phrase, but it's show business. So people always talk about that, and, you know, I think a lot of people that are creative types, they want to say, oh, but I'm an artist, and, you know, they wear that creative hat, but they don't like to put on the business hat. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, as soon as we start thinking about a project, we force ourselves to think, okay, well, who is the audience for this? And at the end of the day, the audience is, they're your customers, so it is like, Every movie is like starting a a business, and you know you would never open up a a store or a small business without thinking, well, who's going to come to my store or who who are my customers? So, you know, we have to treat it the same way. So from the start, we think about that: who are who's who's the audience for this movie? And I just think it's um, an important thing to put on that business hat sometimes and think about who that audience is and you know, you, you juggle between putting on the creative hat and the business hat. It's very true. You know, one of the things I learned from, you know, doing this show is that um, learning about the business side of things can actually be very interesting. I think um, if it's not something that naturally uh, comes to you or you don't have that ability for numbers and, and forecasting and um, you have a fear of it. But if you take it in small chunks and, and make it a priority, I think it can be it can be creative even, um, coming up with ways to make sure that your business is sustainable and, and um, the more that you learn and understand, the more interesting it becomes. And, you know, you can be creative in business too, and I think that's something that people forget is that you can, if you just relied on other people to tell you you can't make it for this amount of money, you can't make it because this is, this is how the budget looks. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand how to read your budget, you won't be able to come up with a, a solution that you can all agree on because you're not understanding the piece that they understand. So I think it's really important, you know, as much as people don't necessarily like in our field to think about the business, it's all about understanding the business so you can succeed. And you, as a creative, can find opportunities that, you know, so much of I think what is so great is Aaron didn't start with a finance background, but I'll sit there and I'll say, well, this is how I think it's supposed to work. And then he'll be like, well, what about this? And it's totally thinking from a different perspective that will come 99% of the time. That's where the solution comes for us, figuring out how to fund something is not from the business person that actually has the background, right. but from Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And that, right, that's that creative piece, you know, but being used for, um, you know, financial reasons. I'd love to know when you think back at the very first film that you made, what would you say the number one lesson was that you took away from that? Um, well, I think Aaron and I both kind of have different lessons, but I think for me it was about just never giving up and, um, making a commitment to a project and seeing it all the way through. And it, it doesn't mean just finishing it in production or finishing it in post-production, but if you're going to say, I'm going to make this film and I want to tell this story, whether it be a five-minute film or if it's a two-hour film, it's making sure you take it all the way out so that your audience reaches it. I think a lot of times people will start a Kickstarter project and say, well, I want to make this movie, 
and they reach out to other filmmakers or their friends and family, but they're not actually reaching the audience who they're making the film for. So for me, it's all about, even from the beginning stages, figure out if you're going to say you're going to make something, what are you going to make, and then figure out how to see it all the way through so at the end of the day your audience sees it. Yeah, our our first feature-length film was, uh, you know, the documentary about the troop greeters, and it took five years from start to finish of discovering the story to releasing the film. And and we followed the three subjects of the film, the three senior citizens, for three and a half years as they, you know, went to the airport every day and greeted these troops, and you saw all the ups and downs of growing old and finding purpose in your life. And I think through it all, we were constantly – questioning you know you're you're years into it and you're you're watching life play out in front of you and you're saying oh, are we are we making a mistake what where is the story going how is it going to end and there's a lot of times where we started questioning like wh- what are we doing should we should we quit on this and you know if you watch the movie and you see the story it's very much about you know these troops heading to war and returning home and about these elderly people that are always there to greet them and every time we thought about giving up, you look at the subjects of our movie and, you know, these troops obviously weren't giving up and these senior citizens weren't giving up. They're going to the airport at 2 a.m. in the middle of a snowstorm to be there for these troops. And it was always a life lesson to just look at our subjects and say, okay, well, what are we complaining about? Because look at these people and what they're struggling with and what they're overcoming and it was always a good life lesson to just keep pushing forward, keep working hard. That's right. My gosh, perseverance when, when um, yep. you know, the reflections of their lives were what touched me um, so deeply. When, you you know, you just simply had the camera on the face of either Bill or, uh, and I should mention your mom was one of the greeters, Aaron, Joan, Gaudette. Um, right. and, and Jerry Mundy, Bill Knight, Joan Gaudette, and Jerry Mundy. And when they were just sitting and they were reflecting back on their own lives, it was so moving. You know, they were, they were just such simple moments in that film, but they resonated so much, um, because yeah. I think they were, you know, they were facing the end and, and trying to determine what was most important. And for, and for all three of them, it seemed to me as if purpose was what really mattered to them. Exactly. And also, just to go back to, you know, being open and then also, um, you know, everything happening for a reason, um, you know, as we started filmmaking, I was also able to convince Gita to go out on a date with me, and we had started <laughs> dating, and, you know, we were living in Michigan working, but I was taking her home for Christmas in 2004 to just meet my mom for the first time because she was also my girlfriend, Right. And we had no idea the extent of what my mom was doing in greeting troops. We were just, ah. we said, oh, you're doing that. Let's go to the airport with you and see what you're doing. And you know, we've been looking for an idea for a documentary, but we hadn't found anything that hit us. And we went with her, and it was a 2 a.m. snowstorm around Christmas, and we mm-hmm. went to the airport with her. And we just watched these troops come in and interact with these senior citizens and looked at each other and was like, wow, like this wow. could be the story. So, you know, being open to it, but also, you know, everything happening for a reason. Like I, you know, if we were just 
business partners, I wouldn't have been taking her home to meet my mom. That's <laughs> you know? right. So but Gita, Gita, did you think he set you up? Was it like too good of a story? You're like, yo, dude, you set me up because how did you not know this? <laughs> well, to convince an Indian girl to go to Maine in the dead of winter takes a lot of work. Really? <laughs> but it was completely worth it. Wow. That is, that's just so awesome how that happened. And that's, I'm sure you guys have read the book The Alchemist by Paulo yes. Coelho. I mean, yes. your, your story is that that's, and it was, it was required reading for my kids in seventh grade. I said, you can't leave the house till you read this book. It was one of those, because I said, you know, until you realize, like, the people don't pay attention to their lives and they miss some of those, the most amazing opportunities that are right in front of them because they're so busy thinking about where they're going, they're not where they are. And so you, you miss those synchronicities and, and those fabulous, you know, things that happen along the journey. Yeah, we always feel like uh, when things are going bad, uh, you know, when you get through it and we look back, we always see, like, how even the things that went bad for us were happening for a reason and oh, yeah. something else happened. You know, even the the trip to Maine that first time, we, uh, you know, we're flying from Michigan and it's in the winter and we got stranded in Detroit for 55 hours in this airport because of storms. Oh, and the I can time relate. that we got to Maine, we were already supposed to have been back in Michigan and going back to work, but it took us so long to get there. And we, you know, it was a real struggle to be sleeping on the airport floor. And But then looking back on it, you know, we would have never gone to that flight because we weren't even supposed to be there then. And, you know, we'll always look back and you can see how, oh, well, yeah, we, we got stranded in the airport for two days, but look what it resulted in. We went home and then there was this flight that we were actually there for. And, you and know, that's everything when Bill of... was diagnosed with prostate cancer and later that night he was at the airport greeting troops and oh. had the most amazing interview. So if we had, if everything went as planned, we would have come home and never would have heard about Bill's prostate cancer yeah. and him greeting troops that night and having this amazing experience and then going home with him early, early that next morning to see what his house was like. And, you know, it was just, it all happened at the right time. Wow. And never would have expected it. That's that's proof of fate, right? Fate is... Absolutely. It, think, yeah, think yeah. for destiny. Definitely. Tell me, um, in, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to know how you two make it work. In other words, it's a lot of togetherness for a couple and a partnership on a professional level. <laughs> Try to be politically correct. Yeah. How do you keep from killing each other? <laughs> what is your, right, what is your, tell us the tip for just, you know, I, I think everybody does things differently as far as, you know, just getting up and living the life they want. And you're doing that. You're pursuing your dream. And But for couples, really, how what is it that you do that um, helps you to do it right and healthy, well, I should say? <laughs> I don't know if we do it right, but we are doing it. But I, I think <laughs> for us, um, we love each other and we are best friends and we know that Every day, you don't know what it's going to bring you. But at the end of the day, yeah, maybe it's okay to argue sometimes to get to the right result. Mm -hmm. But it's all about, I think, communicating. And I think, however, we've, we work every single day, and it's always work, but it's every single day we work to figure out how to best communicate with each other about what we need to do, what we want in our script. Like, you know, we get up at 4.30 in the morning 
And we have our morning early hours where we meditate and we'll sit down and we write for a big chunk of the time. And then during that early morning hours, it's when we actually have the peace and the calm to just talk through anything creative that we want to do. And then after a certain point in the afternoon, we take meetings or when you don't have meetings, we make that time about us of going for walks and trying to make it more about a better life-work balance. And I think the key is for us right now in our period in our relationship is really just figuring out how to incorporate more of the um, relaxation part of it into our life instead of all so much about the work and next steps and everything. But so but we that, love each other so much. I think that we kind of get – we know we're not going anywhere. We're both not, you know – ever going to be a part <laughs> you're committed <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the fact that you begin your day with meditation and you understand the importance of that that's it, such a sign of maturity my god your your souls are way far more evolved than your ages so you know it took me well into my 50s to figure it out <laughs> it's never too late yeah. beth right i know i'm a work in progress we all are <laughs> So uh, yeah. I think um, I, it's exciting. I think that you're you're working on your next film. And tell me um, when you think that's going to be out. Is it it's at the very beginning? Are you um, close to um, revealing? Yeah. So we're in, um, we're working through getting into production, and we're hoping to be in production sometime within 2016 with a release date of 2017. Okay. Terrific. Right now we're working with different studios and financiers to try to figure out how to, which option is the best option for us that allows us the creativity that we want at the right price to make the movie for. And Gita, how many would you say independent filmmakers are there um, out there? I don't know the statistics about it. And of course, all we hear um, in the news are about the big films and the big filmmakers. But are you up against a lot? I mean, there's always competition because, you know, when you define an independent filmmaker, it could be anybody who picks their phone and decides they want to shoot video. And That's they can right. Call themselves. I mean, that's the unfortunately the title of what someone calls. We're themselves. also on the other end of the oh, spectrum. Yeah. You know, movies that Twelve Years a Slave or a movie that's winning Best Picture was made independently, so that gets lumped in with independent uh. filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So we're we're our category is such a huge, large scope category that I mean, there's no way to actually put a number on it. I mean, when you think about the major festivals, Toronto and Sundance, you're competing with tens of thousands of filmmakers, and and usually at that level, they are you know pretty significant considering like you know they're they're independent filmmakers they're making movies on a regular basis yeah well listen we're, we're out of time oh, and i wish fabulous. you both the best of luck we'll be following you and and sharing um all your good fortune thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us it's been thank a pleasure you. thank you Take thank care. you thanks. dr dupree have a great week happy holidays talk to you soon One happy week. holidays everyone all right take care bye-bye